How do you bring comfort and peace, especially peace, to people who live in fear all the time? Well, point them to the one who drives out all fear and can conquer fear. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Rich Rodowski. And I'm Emily Wilson. Welcome back to the podcast, and we hope that you love listening to Essentially Translatable. And if you find I really need Essentially Translatable in my life, then there are ways that we can help you with that. Emily, why don't you tell some folks how they might be able to be sure Essentially Translatable shows up when and where they We would need love it. to help you. lbt.org slash podcast is a surefire way to find all of them. But also on all of your platforms, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the fun things. Yep. Yeah. So more than just finding them, I recommend subscribing because then you get an alert. Right. And see. Shows up right the there. Latest. Yep, definitely so. And uh, we love your feedback. Certainly uh, write to us at info at lbt.org with any feedback you have or leave feedback on Apple Podcasts. I know that platform for sure gives you a place to do that and that positive feedback helps to move the podcast up via some kind of magic algorithm stuff you're you're so talking to an it. android user so i'm just uh-huh okay uh-huh, sure uh-huh yep <laughs> android people just write email it's still a thing <laughs> we use smoke signals thank smoke you. signals yeah <laughs> that but we do love your feedback and appreciate uh, that so today we are talking with Dr. Tim Beckendorf, who is actually a translation consultant in training. You want to fill us in on what that actually means, right? Sure. <laughs> Tim's got years of experience, and as a translation consultant, uh, he'll work with different language groups. As those communities produce the Bible translation in their language, he can give them guidance, training, technical support. Mm-hmm. And he has finished his doctorate recently and, and uh, just doing a little bit of shadowing with a a translation consultant. That's the in-training part. And, uh, <laughs> soon ready. And Tim has been in Botswana for 17 years, oh. if I'm not mistaken, and has spent most of that time working with the Kwedam language community. Uh, Kwedam is a Khoisan language, and that means that this previously unwritten language if you just Mm -hmm. stop and dwell on that for a second, that he has helped and used other resources to help them to be able to write their language. This language, in addition to having previously been unwritten, also has clicks uh, in the language as some of the consonant sounds. So Mm -hmm. a really unique group uh, of folks that are scattered in uh, northern Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tim Beckendorf and that it's highly educational because it was for me. Yeah. Enjoy. All right. We are here in the studio today with Dr. Tim Beckendorf, the Reverend Doctor from uh, Botswana, one of our missionaries, and glad to have you with us in the studio today. Thank Welcome you. to the podcast. We want to have the listeners get to know a little bit about your context. Tell us some about uh, where you're at in Botswana and the folks that you're working with in ministry. In Botswana, we're in the far northwestern part of the country, 10 kilometers, six miles from the Namibian border. We're far removed from the major population in the country, which is down south and east. The Quay are traditionally hunter-gatherers. They have been dispersed among four different countries because of conflict, mostly war. They're in South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, and Angola. Mm. So it creates 
uh, some logistical challenges to meet everybody. The women are still engaged in the gathering part of their culture, but the men are not allowed to hunt anymore. That was about the mid-90s that stopped. The government has not allowed them to hunt, and they've been relocated. You know, they used to follow the migration of the herds. They don't do that anymore. They've been had to settle down in villages in order to be recognized by the government mm. to receive any government uh, services, such as clinics, a kotla, uh, which is their court system for the Tuana. Mm. So the men's role has changed dramatically in the last generation. When we first got there 16 years ago, most of the men really had no direction didn't know what to do with their lives. They uh, unfortunately spent a lot of time drinking. That uh, has changed significantly in the last uh, probably five, six years. Church involvement, and mostly with the Zion Christian Church of South Africa, they are a healing-type church. They uh, combine elements of Christianity and elements of traditional African religion. And it's very popular. And one of their one of their main tenets is, you know, if you're drinking, you're damned. Hmm. So that stopped a lot of the drinking because the men are looking for direction. They see this church as providing some sort of giving them some power over uh, disease, which was prevalent with HIV and AIDS. The nation as a whole, back when we were started, had like a 33% infection rate with the Quay and other minority languages and minority groups. It was closer to 60%. On a given day, I'd look in a village and I'd, I knew how many people were positive and it was just astounding. Mm. Uh, so we had lots and lots and lots of funerals. Mm. And that's really changed because of the, the ARVA program by the government, but also because guys have stopped drinking and stopped fraternizing, as it were. Mm. So, yeah, their role has changed a lot. They're still trying to figure out a direction, you know, how do they fit in with their community? They have this tie to the past, and yet, you know, they're living in the present, and what are we going to do? So some of them are getting jobs, which is good. The government has uh, recognized that the minority groups need to be engaged with the rest of the economy, and so they provide, you know, free training for guys. One of our translators, when he got out of high school, he was trained to be a paramedic, compliments of the government. Mm. You know, I know... A number of those type of situations. So that's very positive. Language-wise, you know, they have a language that is unique for most people who are used to Indo-European languages. Uh, Khoisan languages use cliques. There are five cliques. The Khoi have four of them that they incorporate in their language. It's a very fascinating language, you know, linguistically, you know, why did cliques develop among the San and not other groups? Just as an aside, uh, there's a theory that because they were hunters traditionally and, you know, they had primitive weapons, you know, they didn't have rifles and such, they used bows and spears to kill large animals. And so how did they get close to them and be able to communicate with each other because it was a team effort? And one of the theories is that, you know, the language evolved to match the environment. The Kalahari is very dry, a desert. And so the sounds in the environment are these dry, snapping types of sound as you walk, things will break, and, you know, it's a snapping sound. So they theorized that the clicks came about, you know, in order to enable them to communicate with each other and get close to the animals to hunt them. That makes a lot of sense to me because as we get further north and away from the desert and to more river areas, which is where we are, the frequency of the clicks in the languages decreases. Mm -hmm. Down in the Kalahari, you know, 
very high frequency of clicks. Mm -hmm. Ours, I mean, still high frequency compared to other languages, but not nearly as much as in the Kalahari. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So this language wasn't written down. Right, I think that's what we've we've heard through reading your your prayer letters and the like. So, how did you learn the language and and to be able to communicate and work with the Bible translation program? Language learning was a lot of fun. I had found three guys out in the village on close to where we lived. Most of their villages are across the river, which is not easily accessible. So, I found a village on my side of the river where I could go every day easily. And we'd just go out in the bush walking around, and I'd ask them the names of plants, mm-hmm. plants and trees and so forth, and I'd just write them down using the International Phonetic Alphabet so that I could go back and remember how they would sound. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a long time, and then I began gathering stories from the elders. I recorded them. We went to every village in Botswana and a few in Namibia, and we just gathered the elders together and asked who would like to share a story, and we recorded them. And then it took probably five, six months for one of my language learning helpers and I to transcribe them all. And once we transcribed them, then I started you know, developing uh, not only my language skills, but also building a dictionary then. Mm. That's where I really got to learn the language well was when I started transcribing. Mm. I am crippled by literacy, I would say. I cannot learn as well just hearing, but when I can see it written mm-hmm. down, it sticks in my mind. So that was a lot of fun. Not just language learning, but getting to know the culture through those stories. They have some amazing stories to tell, and some of them, you know, they're fables. People, well, Pete Unseth asked me, you know, mm. are there any proverbs in the language? Well, I said, well, there are fables that sort of have a teaching, but they're really violent, and the heroes of the right. stories are always, you know, the, the most devious ones who are able to deceive others and to get to their place of position of power over the others you know that's elevated in the culture and it just really bothered me for a long time and you accept that it's a culture of Mm. you know survival and power yeah and uh, i think we should also point out that uh, kwedam language is one of of many khoisan family languages do you have any idea approximately how many different like languages there are i should know that but i don't yeah i mean there's Dozens, at least. Yes. I mean, yeah. it can be. I was recently in Botswana a couple of months on research, and you'll hear people talk about, you know, the sound language, and I'm like, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so lots of, and small groups, and you know, fairly different languages. Like you know, quite dumb, so you're not just automatically going and speaking all these other languages at this point. So correct. And a lot of the sound languages, the smaller ones, have or are dying out, mm-hmm. just because population-wise, the populations are dying, especially during the HIV/AIDS. Uh, pandemic. A lot of people died and the communities were small to begin with, so there are not a lot left. However, with the uh, larger song groups like the Kwe or the Naro, there are a significant population. The language is vibrant. Children grew up speaking Kwedam. They don't learn Setswana or e- mm-hmm. English until they go, or if they go to school. Many mm-hmm. go to school now. It used to be not, a, not many, but now a lot of them go to school, probably the majority. Mm-hmm. So there is a great impact of you know, being able, to, this is their first language, it's maybe the language they understand best as adults. So Absolutely. that the impact of having uh, the Bible translated in their own language 
I'm assuming for the community then, like this has been something that has brought a little bit of an identity recognition. I've heard that with a number of our other language programs in on the continent of Africa. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Bible translation, you know, we have this very lofty goal of getting God's word into people's hearts. And that is our goal, to engage people with God's salvation story and for the Holy Spirit to create faith. But there's also another aspect of it that brings, like you said, identity to communities. Mm -hmm. Not just that, yes, our language is important, but once you have published material, and such as a dictionary or a grammar, and even more importantly, when you have the Bible, now you're recognized by the government your language is legitimate. Mm. And that allows you to now in Botswana to have your language be a candidate for being taught in the schools, Mm -hmm. which is hugely important. These are people who have been marginalized for centuries by other tribes. And to have them recognize, you know, not only is our language important, but we're important, Mm -hmm. not just to the government, but when they realize that God speaks their language, that's hugely important. Yeah, so powerful. The language program that you're working with is a little unique in comparison maybe with our more typical programs. Can you share a little bit about what makes it unique? Yes. When we first started working there, our regional director, Jim Lesh, had floated an idea past me about doing, you know, perhaps it would serve them best to have a panoramic Bible. Uh, One of the former LBT missionaries who has since passed away, Jonathan Burmeister, had devised a schedule for which portions of the Old Testament, which portions of the New Testament would give you the broad picture of God's salvation story from creation through the book of Acts, the creation of the New Testament church. And I thought it was a fantastic idea. I have always uh, felt that the New Testament on its own is, one person I read said very bluntly, it's incomprehensible without the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go that to be that that strong, but it is there is so much lost when you don't have the Old Testament as the background for the New Testament. And so I thought it was important to have that full picture, as it were. And then, you know, as once we would finish that project, which should have been done in five years' time, and here we are sixteen years later, <laughs> then we could hopefully move on to filling that into a whole New Testament or even beyond that. But as we know things go a little bit differently scheduled in Africa than they do here. Mm. (laughs) And uh, what was an experience you had which really showed the need for God's Word in the heart language as you were beginning to work with these folks? When I was doing language learning, I was constantly being called upon to help people get to the clinics because, like I said, HIV and AIDS was huge. And I went to the village one day, and uh, one of my language helpers came to me, and he said, can you please come to my cousin's hut? She's, she needs to get the, to the clinic. She's dying. Sir, you know, absolutely, we'll see if we can help her. And it, it's a very long story, but to make the story short, yes, she was dying. We took her to the hospital in Namibia, which is right across the border, because they have a very good clinic there. On our side, the clinics were not as well-equipped, and her family was on that side as well. She was married, living in the village where I did my language learner, but all of her family was in Namibia. Mm. The border's artificial for the Quay, as for many people. (laughs) So she ended up dying, and after I found out that she had died, I went 
back out to the village and tried to find her husband, and I couldn't find him anywhere. And, you know, asked people, where is he, where is he? Don't know, don't know. I finally found someone who said, yes, he's in that little hut over there. And it was just a makeshift hut. He had taken branches, constructed it, put a blanket over top of it. He was hiding from the ancestors because he was convinced that the ancestors were going to kill him because he was responsible for his wife's death. Hmm. In his mind, he was responsible for her death. Hmm. And so he is hiding because if he'd go out during the day, the ancestors would see him and they would, you know, kill him. And it just made me acutely aware of how this was a culture that lived in fear, fear of everything, not just the ancestors, but the environment was dangerous. You know, darkness is dangerous. Fear was just prevalent in the culture. And how do you bring comfort and peace, especially peace to people who live in fear all the time, well, point them to the one who drives out all fear and can conquer fear. Mm. That's incredibly powerful. Yeah. So in the uh, panoramic Bible stories, which of course, as you mentioned, have been (laughs) worked on for a while, you've also had the privilege of being able to release some of those in the interim, one of which is the Noah and the the story of the flood. How was that one particularly impactful for the the Quaidam community? That was a very interesting when the people first engaged with that story, when they heard the reason for the flood, that God was punishing the people because they were excessively sinful, they were not repentant, you know, Noah was the only one who was righteous among all these people. One lady actually said, you know, she was astounded that God punishes people because of sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sin was not a concept in their culture. You know, the word that, or the expression that we're using to convey sin, that concept, has to do more with being off the mark or just not Mm -hmm. quite right, but there's no consequence for it, really, and certainly not in a God's eyes. So that was very powerful in the recognition that, whoa, sin has some extreme consequences. And yet, you know, that same story with Noah had the concept of salvation, Mm -hmm. that God out of his mercy does save. So it was really eye-opening then that there's this there's this God who actually looks and says and makes a call and says, this isn't right, and we're going to stop it here. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, as my wife just pointed out, um, the creator God who in Kwaidam is Kianima, or Kiani, he's like the watchmaker God. He created everything, but he steps back, you know. Mm -hmm. Now everything is in the realm of the trans of the uh, translators. Yes, yeah. is in the realm <laughs> of the ancestors. And it's the ancestors. We'll let them know. Yeah, <laughs> it's on you guys now. <laughs> yeah, so it's the ancestors who are needing to be appeased, and if they're not appeased, then there's punishment for not appeasing them. But as far as you know, a sin of intention or a sin of uh, omission or those types of sins, it's you know just like well, you you just didn't quite make it. It's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we get and in, dig into that judicial system a little bit, before that, you mentioned that you're translating the Tower of Babel, and you get to a problem already, even just a real much more basic problem. Talk, talk to us about that. When we were translating that story, we got really hung up on how are we going to express brick. It's a culture that, you know, yeah, you can see bricks around town because things, you know, have are built in bricks, but in the villages, everything is built out of branches and grass and mud, but they don't make bricks. You know, it's not part of their culture. 
and they felt very strongly that they were not going to use a borrowed expression to express brick. Okay. Uh, they wanted their own expression, and how are we going to do that? And we went back and forth in community meetings, and there were some very heated discussions, how are we going to express it? And it went on for years, and it's still now, every time we come to that story, it's like, okay, <laughs> that's not how we should express brick. It should be this way. <laughs> yeah. We need to make a decision here, guys. You know, It's going to be yeah. published soon. So that really, you know, insistence that they don't want to have borrowed expressions in their language, you know, they don't want to have vocabulary from other languages, especially other tribes that are the oppressive tribes in their language, really resonated with me. And so we went, when we uh, got to the expressions, the judicial expressions, you know, such as law yeah. and ordinance and statutes, you know, there's a, you know, there's a good handful of them in the Old Testament. How are we going to translate these? And... Initially, it was, we can't. We don't have any, that's not part of our culture. Yeah. We're going to have to use a borrowed word. Be, I mean, for them to say that meant that there was no way to express it. Yeah, that's really, right. like, so we feeling had, desperate at that point. Yeah. Then. yeah. <laughs> so initially, we had this borrowed expression, VETA, which we used kind of like a placeholder whenever we came across the expression for law or ordinance or any of those things. And... When we actually had a consulting session long ago in Genesis, the consultant said, looked at it and said, well, you know, you, it's a sign language. You don't have judicial expressions. No, we don't. Okay, that's fine. Which, to me, that was just too easy. Mm -hmm. And so it bothered me for years. And Dr. Michael McGann is our consultant now. And a couple of years ago, he gave us kind of a mini workshop on semantic frames and how they're good at conceptualizing things in a categorized way in a language. And so he started us with, you know, what's a hunting frame? You know, let's fill out a hunting frame. And so you have many subframes within that. You'd have, you know, weapons would be one frame. And then there would be, you know, techniques for hunting would be another frame. Then the whole food issue is another frame. And that brought into up the, that brought up the concept of taboo. Okay. Mm. Because when they kill an animal... Once the hunters kill that animal, their job is done. Someone else brings that animal to the village. Someone else then takes care of cleaning and dismembering that animal. The elders then take portions of the animal, sacrifice it to the ancestors to thank them for a successful hunt. And then the rest of that meat is divvied up according to age, gender, and another lady who had worked there with them for many years explained that, you know, it really doesn't have anything to do with... Uh, what we would consider taboo in our language, it's more of survival. It's ensuring that the community has equal distribution of the meat. So this concept of taboo, that you're allowed to do certain things, not allowed to do other things, yeah. brought in a whole other group of expressions that we explored for how we're going to express law. That's and yeah. the technique then that we devised or came up with was rather than, you know, explain the concept that's in the Bible of law. Let's find points where their cultural expressions in certain frames might overlap significantly or just minutely with the biblical expression mm -hmm. or the biblical concept. And so what is the essence of the law? So that was the first question we had to answer, you know, so do a lot of research and, you know, you know the root sense here could be teaching. Uh, that's certainly one sense of the word Torah. And so do we have a way of 
expressing teaching in the culture. Well, yes, we do, you know, because when the children go up, get to puberty age, the elders, male and female, each divide up the responsibility that men have this puberty right for the boys, likewise the women for the girls. And I had collected a lot of these stories, actually, when I did my language learning. And so we had a way to express teaching. Then we look at, you know, historically, when you go out to hunt, was there a leader? Were there certain things that you needed to do as a leader? So let's bring in that whole hunting frame again. Are there things in here that could express you were doing this, you know, to have a successful hunt or so forth. Yeah, okay, that brings all in a whole bunch more expressions that we could see if they could work. And then more significantly, you look at uh, community life, and that brings in a whole range of things such as recognition of the ancestors, how you appease the ancestors, when another tribe is attacking, what you do to keep the community safe. That one was really key because when you look at what God gave to the people at Sinai, you know, you're about to go into the land I promised you. You're going to be surrounded by a bunch of pagans. Right. These are the laws, statutes, ordinances that you will do to keep you separate, to keep you safe, to keep you separate, mm-hmm. to make you loyal to me so that you don't go chasing after other gods. So the concept of leadership, what does that leader do? And primary role is to keep the people safe. Mm-hmm. They travel around a lot. They came in contact with other hostile tribes as they were following the migrations of the animals. So that started to generate a lot of expressions that really could overlap with the biblical concepts of law. One of them that we are using quite a bit now to express more specific concept of law is literally it's walk this way. And that was an expression that was used to identify the person who would lead them and to keep them safe. Mm. And also, these are the things that you will do now in order to stay safe. And so that really resonates well with the community. You know, it has significant overlap with some of the legal concepts in Scripture. And it just, looking at these semantic frames, just generated a whole lot of expressions that we could draw from. I went back and I did the same thing with the borrowed expressions that we had for commandment, for law, and I don't remember what the other one was. They generated zero. Hmm. And I wanted to do more research on that. You know, it's just in two villages, and I'd like to do it in a lot more vill- villages because it really brought, made it clear that, you know, using these borrowed expressions, not only does it continue to marginalize the language and the people because it gives you the sense that, you know, our language is not even capable of expressing biblical mm. concepts. Wow. But it also gives them zero meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started with these concept or these uh, expressions in the borrowed language. Said, "Okay, let's try and generate as many expressions from them as we can in Quaidam." We got zero every time. And so, yes, they know this word, right? But they don't know the what's encapsulated within this word. What are the concepts that link to it? The whole network that is created when it's a word in your own language. There's nothing there. Right. So. That was very eye-opening, and like I said, I'd like to do more research just to see if that is you know, consistent. So is it kind of right now landing on uh, then, when you're talking about the law and you start to picture God in the Quaidan language, it's like someone who leads in order to protect, and the rules are, in a sense, like taboos also to protect you and to guide you. That's kind of how it might feel to... Right, to that's that. how it is kind of meshed with the biblical concept. Cool. So I am curious, as you've been wrestling with everything related to law, like 
you know, as Lutherans, we're like law and gospel. But like the all of the terms associated with gospel of, uh, you know, being free, <laughs> freedom and truth and life and all of these terms that we associate, you know, and then we get the really churchy terms of like sanctification <laughs> and what difference of grace versus mercy. Have those been a, a particular point of discussion or, or challenge in the community? So far, the, the ones that have been the biggest challenge have been those that are associated with grace mm. or a gift. We have not found a good expression, one that we like. We found an expression quite on to use for gift, but it's not really a concept in the culture. You don't get anything freely, mm. right. yeah. which is a great way to express, you know, grace. I mean, we can't even conceptualize it in our minds. You know, we have this word in, in English for it, but do we really conceptualize it that this is something that is free? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't because we still have a lot of legalism and a lot of sense that we can do things to earn our salvation. So when you have a culture that does not have that sense to begin with and you associate that expression and you fill it out with God's attributes and how merciful, and I mean, I'm using you know words here that are packed with all kinds right. of meaning yeah. here that we need to unpack. We have to make some frames for those two. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But when you express that in terms of this is, these are God's attributes, you know, yeah. they're completely different from humans. You know, that's yeah. a great opportunity for that gospel to really shine. Mm. So as you think on uh, the time, you've been 16 years plus, right, in yes. Botswana at this point. What do you think you would say has given you the greatest joy during that time? Seeing people grow in faith. I mean, I think of Splash when he first start, when I first met him when we first started and he started as a translator. He was not a Christian, mm-hmm. and he'll even say that you know I was just a pagan. I was a drunkard. He wasn't really a drunkard, but in his mind, he had a beer once a week. He was a drunkard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to see how he's grown over the years, to see how you know God's word and engaging with God's word can change a person dramatically. And I don't have a lot of you know wonderful stories to tell about this. Sure. Splash comes to mind, you know, yeah. I'd have to think hard to think of other ones, but, you know, mm-hmm. God is working very quietly and in his time, and, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he brings his purposes about in his time. Yeah, what do you think, again, from, from those years of experience, uh, Western Christians can learn from the folks you're working with, whether they're Christian or not, just uh, about life and whatever? One thing I've learned and, you know, I knew it academically before we ever went to Africa, but it took many years for it to really dawn on me. And it wasn't until I was actually doing research. We know, you know, Westerners, we're time-oriented, and in Africa and many other cultures of the world, they're relationship-oriented. You know, we know that, but we, the time aspect is so embedded in our culture that we can't get beyond it. Um, Mm. And to try and stand in somebody else's shoes who don't have the same worldview that we do is very, very difficult. And so to have patience with another culture who does things differently than we do or than an individual does and to try and understand from their perspective why, and not just why, but um, just to accept it and Mm. appreciate it Mm. and honor that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that there's so much within Scripture that it's like we assume, you know, we have our Western lens as we're reading it, but it's like, 
you know, time and and hospitality and waiting and uh, a reliance and community. Those are all very firmly rooted in a lot of the, the cultures that are in the middle of a Bible translation program right now and how much uh, we have to learn from that. Yeah, definitely. How can we be praying for your ministry with the Quaidam and going forward? We are hoping to publish uh, our panoramic Bible this coming year, and one prayer is that yeah, that will happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But most importantly, in the meantime and when it does happen, that people will be engaged with that word and that the Holy Spirit will work through that to bring many to saving faith. We will most certainly be keeping you in prayer, and we're just very thankful that you've taken time to to share about your work in the Bible translation program with the Quay people. And God's blessings as you continue in your ministry. Thank you. All right, like you said, highly educational conversation with Dr. Tim Beckendorf. I love how he just captures the the challenges, but the opportunities right. as well in being able to be in relationship with the Quaidam language community and how there is that hunger mm-hmm. for God's word. Yep. So like even though they're they're spread out and they've faced a lot of different hardships, you know, just as the AIDS epidemic and for education and and being able to be uh, united, but they they still have that vision for how important it is that you know their identity is as you know God's children. Absolutely, and from a, a technical angle too, I love the discussion about frames of reference. You know, they first thought, well, we don't really have a way that we talk about judging and making decisions. But then, you know, using a tool like Frames of Reference, they were able to dig in and say, okay, but in this case, you guys do have a set of rules and you do make decisions here. So how can we talk about what's happening in the scripture using that insight into how you actually do things? And they actually learned about themselves and then learned how, okay, God does this or describes this thing in his word. And and that's even more relatable to us because ultimately we're also God's children, and we have a, an understanding to bring to God's Word as well, and it's, it instructs us. But then we as the greater Christian community also learn a little something about how God's Word works. So that was kind of a, a cool discussion. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Of that, it, We strengthen one another from seeing, like, no, God's Word is for all people, right. you know, regardless of where they're living, you know, whether it's South America or Australia or, you know, in Europe— Asia, that God's word is for all people and that those barriers that we sometimes see culturally, that we're actually, we've experienced the bridge ourselves, you know, that so many of the expressions of, you know, the ancient Near East have been translated for us and that that same gift can be given. Somebody went before us to do that hard work and now today in the 21st century, people are still on the edges, still doing that hard work so that God's word can just get straight into the heart. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. Look for past episodes at lbt.org slash podcast or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators' social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's word in their hands. 
The Essentially Translatable podcast was produced and edited by Andrew Olson. Our executive producer is Emily Wilson. Podcast artwork was created by Caleb Rodewald and Sarah Lyons. Music written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Rodowski. So long for now. <laughs>